No man needs sympathy because he has to work, because he has a burden to carry. Far and away, the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. And this is a prize open to every man, for there can be no better worth doing than that done to keep in health and comfort and with reasonable advantages those immediately dependent. There is no room in our healthy American life for the mere idler, for the man or the woman whose object it is throughout life to shirk the duties which life ought to bring. Life can mean nothing worth meaning unless its prime aim is the doing of duty, the achievement of results worth achieving. A recent writer has finally said, after all, the saddest thing that can happen to a man is to carry no burdens. To be bent under too great a load is bad. To be crushed by it is lamentable. But even in that, there are possibilities that are glorious. But to carry no load at all, there's nothing in that. No one seems to arrive at any goal really worth reaching in this world who does not come to it heavy laden. That was from a speech by Theodore Roosevelt on September 7th, 1903 at the New York State Agricultural Association in Syracuse, New York, in which he was talking about the square deal that he was uh, bringing out to the country. And I think the, the one part of that quote that resonates with me and has has for a while is that uh is the part that's probably quoted most often or definitely quoted most often which says that far and away the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing and i'll talk about that a little bit in the inspiration of the week later on welcome to settle the far this is Corey garvey and this is a podcast where i talk to people who have made big jumps in their lives either to a new country a new career, a new community, something big that they decided they needed to do, what motivated them to get there, and, and what that experience was really like. Finally, looking back, what is it that they feel that they've learned about themselves, about the world, going through that process? Today, I sit down and chat with my beautiful wife, Aslihan, about the transition and uh, experience of going from a non-English-speaking country in Turkey, where she grew up, to the Western English-speaking world and how that started in her education uh, and then sort of progressed as she moved to a new place and had to, uh, I guess, struggle through some of the difficulties of not having the uh, the best English when arriving in the States. You can find Settle Defar on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and my website, podcast.coreygarvey.com where I include some notes for various different episodes, and you can give me feedback through the feedback form. You can also find me on Twitter at at Corey B. Garvey. So if you have any uh, suggested guests or just thoughts on the pod, hit me up. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to have some, uh, some conversations with people about this kind of stuff. And so without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Aslihan Selimbeolu. All right. All right, I got a nice new guest here on Settle the Far. Crunching on some popcorn over there. <laughs> My wonderful wife, Aslihan. Oh, thank you. Me put this down. Okay, so I'm going to try to keep this pretty informal. Just a little chat while we're doing our puzzle. Thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. Whew. How's that sound? The puzzle sounds very difficult. Puzzle uh, is pretty difficult. I, I mean, to, I don't think I could have formal chatting this anyway, so I appreciate the thought. 
so the thing I want to know about that I already kind of know about is, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to get on record, recording, uh, is about learning English and then moving to America where kind of had to learn English. So maybe the first question is, what was your initial introduction to English? Where did you learn it? How old were you? What was the motivation? Like, did you need to use it? Did they bring it up like, hey, if you don't learn English, you're going to be a failure in life? What was that like? Yeah, I think it got me a little emotional. It's a, the introduction to English is a very, a topic that's very close to my heart. Ooh. That's because when I was a tiny child, I think that's actually when I was born, my dad had started doing his PhD. And I don't know if he was doing it in, P in English, but he was definitely, he had a lot of references in English. So then I remember, like, my first introduction to English was actually books that were in English that my dad read. And for some reason, I don't know why, maybe I was not that small, like four or five years old. I knew that it was a different language than Turkish. So there were Turkish books in my house and English books. And English books were more like serious looking, you know, they had these like graphs in them, some like maybe tables, figures with a lot of numbers. Uh, to clarify, he was studying finance. Um, and I just remember being extremely curious. And in my mind, I thought if I understood that language, I would be closer to my dad's world. So it was just, you know, and I say it's emotional because like those times where I would interact with these books and probably like put a lot of marks on that, <laughs> that ruined the books. Uh, my dad like would sit me, you know, on his lap and then just like we would read together, whatever, that kind of thing. As he was studying, I would be with him. So it was very nice for me. And this but was before you had any formal... This is yeah, way before. And then when I started primary school I guess at the age of seven I was formally introduced to English because my first year in primary school I was in this private school and we had English classes and to speed that process up of learning English my dad would I think generally right before we went to bed we would just lie down and he would have like Economist, The Times those are the two I remember, some English journals, and he would read them to me. And imagine, like, it's your first year of English or yeah. any language, so you, like, barely start building simple sentences, and now you are learning about, I don't know, like, an economist article where they talk about why interest rates are raising in the U.S. Yeah. kind of thing. So it was just learning a lot of different topics, learning about the world outside and also learning like the structure of the language new vocabularies that was very complicated to me too so for me english without any you know i guess explicit knowledge or instruction english 
has always been a door to the outside world for me. Did it seem like... bigger world. So the, the, the financial, I guess, knowledge that your dad and you were getting from it, is it... Did it feel like that was information that only existed in the English-speaking world? It did, at least for me. Like, I don't know, maybe there were some Turkish journals at the time, but I think my dad, to get a more wider viewpoint... And I, I mean, I'm sure those journals have their own biases. Um, he would buy these things. And again, you know, it was a way for him to introduce me to the language and also to the world. So I just remember that's how I encoded English in my mind. If I know this language, I'm going to be closer to my dad's world. And he knows so much. And, you know, I obviously want a lot of time with him. But also it is my door to the world in general. Um, and it's also fun activity. I don't know, maybe yeah. I was like just a bit, you know, had some talent for learning languages, but I remember it's just being really fun learning new, new vocabulary and being able to recognize these patterns, uh, structures in, you know, like one paragraph sentences in, <laughs> in journals. Yeah. Um, and that after that, I only actually studied English one year. I went to another public school starting second year and after that when I actually learned English I would say was when I was 13 so beginning of middle school I had a whole year of English at preparatory school preparatory class in my school and there luckily I really loved my teacher but I, I just had like 20 hours of English pretty much every week so when you say a whole year 20 hours of English. So you would go in and... We just had a ton of English classes, like speaking, listening, you know, this kind of grammar, that kind of grammar. I don't know. I don't really remember how this, how they were structured. But there were multiple English classes and then some other, you know, lighter classes. How old were you? Spread out. I think I was 13. Was this everybody in, in Turkey? Turkey? No, this was... You had to go through an exam to be able to get a chance to go to these schools that had this preparatory class of English. So I was, I felt pretty privileged. But after a year there, I we moved to my hometown, Nixar, and the English teachers there were not very good. So that year I learned all the English I could, and I didn't really advance it. I mostly practiced it for the next few years until I went to college. What was it like going from the, so you were in a larger town, right? Where you had the, um, that, that year that was. Yeah, I was in Ankara that first year of middle school. The capital. Yes. Were you, what was it like going to your, your hometown after learning English in Ankara? Could you compare it to something in the U.S.? Would it be like going from. New York or San Francisco's maybe I think of I know people who have their kids in these like Chinese hmm. immersion programs at like five years old and then they sort of it would be like them moving to Nebraska or something hmm. and like their kid speaks Chinese like is that somewhat equivalent well I think the difference in um, learning well going to school in um big city 
and especially you know, in a, with people who got a certain score in an exam feels like there is a drop of quality of education when you move to a rural town in the middle of nowhere and the teachers are there teaching because either they are from that town or they are very young, you know, like inexperienced, so they don't really get to choose what school they want to teach at. True. Um, and also, you know, again, like the, the schools overall had not much as high quality there, so I felt like the students were not as I, I don't want to say smart obviously but they were not on par with me because I had learned so much in primary school in Ankara and I don't think they get the chance to learn as much in primary school in Niksar which was this small town so I don't I guess like the equivalent in the US would be you start you know studying college at Stanford and for some reasons second year you need to move to I don't know a tiny town in the middle of the US and you feel like okay now I'm in a crowd that don't know as much as I do and the quality of education is not as high so like I was in Ankara I was an average student yeah I was a good student you know let's say like three and a half four out of five and then I came to Nixar and I was like the star student. I didn't have to study for the first like a year or two. Did I anyone already else, knew everything. Did anyone else speak English? Any of the other kids? No. I was the only one who like had a good understanding of English in that town. And again, we didn't need it. The, the education was in Turkish. Yeah. I didn't really need English until I went to college. Did you think that... So being in that town and going to high school, let's say, and knowing English. Yeah. One, I guess the questions that come up are, did you continue to uh, make sure that you like kept your knowledge of English? My family tried, but we couldn't find very good teachers to help me with that. So I would say no. And at that time, maybe my dad could help a bunch, but... He was so busy, like, setting up his own business. So we didn't really do as much, you know, like, night readings together anymore. Yeah. I think the one thing I that could be maybe more insightful is that being introduced to a different language early on, you get a wider perspective on yes there are different cultures there are other kind of people and there is a different way of looking at life in different places so i think it definitely opens up your world so can can you give an example like i i imagine you could just learn english in turkey and then speak about turkish things in english how does it open up your yeah, but that's not what you do. That's the thing. Because with the language, you learn the new culture. So what did you learn when you learned English? What Like, we, you would be... You would have this, like, English book, right? Like, let's say a textbook in English to teach you English. Yeah. And they, there would be, like, pictures of London or New York. And then there would be, you know, like, American or English names. Yeah. Uh, and they would talk about, I don't know a day in Manhattan and there's this museum and you know that sculpture whatever sure. and that's nothing that you see in your own country yeah. 
So it's definitely, and again, you know, the way you say things, the, the topics that you talk about is different. So it's definitely both different culture and new information to you. And I think that's, that's how it should be done. I think that's done in all the languages, right? Like if you learn French, you, they like put you in a scene in Paris. Yeah. You don't start speaking French and then just say the same things that you say in English. So it's it's nice, you know, as a kid to be introduced to so many new things. And that's why I think you start appreciating speaking that other language if you are curious about the world, obviously. Did it, do you, did it create a sense of, like, inevitability that you would go to New York at some point? Or whatever because it definitely created desire i remember again maybe if i wasn't introduced to english i wouldn't have this i remember saying things like when i was you know eight nine years old yeah i'm gonna study college in in another country most probably in london when you were 11 you said probably earlier than that i was wow. in primary school and my dream was to like hop on a flight which we didn't do like planes were not a thing in turkey i was gonna fly over and i was gonna go to a school in that back then i thought it was gonna be somewhere in europe and then i was gonna speak english and i was gonna like discover all these places that were mentioned in my english books did you know anyone who had done that no 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 one that i knew of but that was my dream and that's like i don't think i was you know, extremely smart or intellectual oriented to start with, but learning English definitely sparked a lot of curiosity in me. And I also got very, like, especially again, learning, reading Economist or the Times, I just became very curious about the Western world. Because in Turkey, you know, like you read, it's the, the media that we followed was just mass media. So yeah. it was just these like same ideas, same kind of topics. And then when you start reading an article in Economist, it is so intellectual. Yeah. And they, not only they tell you, oh, okay, here is the news. Interest rates are down. They tell you why they are down, what it means for the world, how different countries are going to affected by this. And, you know, what is the theory behind it? So it's just way more intellectual, academically oriented. Yeah. And actually, when I when I came to the U.S. and I realized like most people don't have the understanding that I had on those topics because they never read <laughs> the economists growing up. I was really surprised. I thought that was everyone in the Western world, and I realized mm, no, not everyone is is in the same boat as I am. I think a lot of people have that surprise when they get somewhere. Yeah. That. And like American people were very much surprised by me. Like, how do you know that? Like, how can you build the relationship between, you know, interest rate and currency? Like, how do you have an understanding of how, you know, economics work? I took a, I took this econ one hundred and one 
at Stanford because just you know to satisfy my curiosity in English and I knew pretty much everything and that was literally the stuff that I learned as a kid before primary school <laughs> Do, do you think you didn't have some sort of um, feeling that you'd be giving things up in Turkey if you went to the U.S. or saw the, the West? Because never. That's the attitude in the U.S. that I've dealt with. Is hmm. you know why would I want to leave? There's so many good things here that in time I I will get to have access to. You know, when what? I'm an, when I'm an adult, I'll be able to have an apartment in New York City. I'll be able to, you know, go to shows and games and it might not be New York City. It might be, maybe it's because America is really big and there's a lot of stuff to do. But I think part of the reason, part of the fear of getting too caught up in French culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I might want to go to Paris, but think of all the things I'd be giving up in America if I just left and went to Paris. Hmm. Well, I think it's... There was no adult life in your mind of what an adult Turkish life would look like that... Maybe not adult, but like maybe, you know, for whatever time you expected to go over to some Western country. Yeah. I think it's about, you know, as a child, you don't know what is cool, what is not. You know, people give you examples. You look up to certain people or follow certain conversations and then you start forming this model of the world in your mind and for me that was mostly shaped my dad and my dad definitely thought that you know america was a great place to be and you know europe was more advanced from turkey in a lot of things and you know okay we were familiar with what was happening in turkey but we didn't know, you know, he, he had never gone abroad. And I, because my world was, my idea of the world was shaped by his thoughts and his conversations, I thought it was a cool thing to do. If he said, you know, oh yeah, like Eastern Turkey is the, is where the civilization started. And that would, wouldn't be, you know, a very false comment. Maybe I would be curious to go to Eastern Turkey and then, you know, learn the history. Instead, I was curious to go to Europe or the US and learn about economics and finance. So if, if in America people, if in the state people just look up to this idea of, oh, I could live in New York, I could live in, you know, DC and go to this kind of place, learn this kind of thing, have fun this kind of way. And that's not the other places in the world are not mentioned as highly. Obviously, you are not going to feel as compelled. Yeah. What happened when you got to America and you now had to speak English? Was your English good? My English sucked. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't terrible, but I... It was such a painful time. What was the most frustrating... Uh, aspect of not having a grip on the language oh god everything I think there like there is a distinction and I unless you speak or learn a foreign language and get to practice it in 
a different country, you realize that, um, you know, the English spoken in England and US is very much different than the English that's spoken in a company or school in France, right? The way people speak French is different in France than it is in, you know, a French restaurant or whatever school in Istanbul. So when I was in Sweden as an exchange student in college, it was challenging for me. But, you know, I was hanging out with all the other European students and like no one's English was really perfect. So we probably spoke this like (laughs) intermediate level English and everyone was happy. And whatever, you are the same age, you probably look at the world a similar way, which helps. When I went, finally made my way to the US right before my PhD, first I didn't even understand what people were saying. I would go to a supermarket, ask a question. They wouldn't understand what I was saying. I wouldn't understand their answer. It was just so quick way of saying things that I was not very familiar with. And that was a challenge in every single aspect of the life like do you can you order the same thing can you buy the right food how do you make friends how do you find a house to live in because you need to convince the person you know who is gonna rent you the place and they will not be able to communicate with you and somehow feel like you know they can trust you or at least you are a nice intelligent person It's like, I don't know, it's everything. And I felt extremely lonely. What was Um, the... I just remember getting lost all the time because I would ask for directions. They would tell me, they would probably tell me, you know, like turn right after Trader Joe's. I don't know what Trader Joe's is. I don't know. I I can't even imagine how I survived. What was the... I mean, what would you do to try to, like, not be so frustrated? Would you avoid certain things? Just go to the same places a lot? Well, yeah. Like, first, I mean, I also didn't have a car. I bought a bike at some point. Not sure if it happened immediately. I think I was very lucky because, you know, I was there working with... Joseph, like my mentor and he helped me a little bit but I wouldn't ask you know help from him to rent a place yeah uh, but he hooked me up with one of his students and I stayed in her house like she shared a house with like I don't know six other people it was a giant place but it was walking distance to the campus so it was nice and she showed me around a little bit she was like you know like we were looking at this map and where should I like look for houses yeah and she's like, yeah, go to Craigslist or something. and Or like go to Stanford University's, you know, housing website. And make sure you are not looking in Atherton because you're not <laughs> going to be able to pay for that. And make sure you don't like pass this circle because it's going to be really far. So like, I don't think we had a very good relationship. But even like her trying to help me out like 10 minutes a day was great. And that was, I think that like that girl and Joseph, my first two kind of supports to build the life. And the emotional difficulties I 
surpassed by just talking to my family and friends back in Turkey all the time. Just coming home and then immediately ringing my family, you know, speaking Turkish, like feeling like I'm connected to someone and and just like be okay with feeling frustrated and challenged, I guess. I don't know. It wasn't easy and I didn't lie to myself. It was difficult. Did you think you might just leave and go home? No. I never thought that I would give up. I was like, it sucks, but it's what it is. And to be honest, I thought it was gonna last much longer. Maybe, you know, like the whole time I was in US, I was gonna feel like that. And a few months in when I found a place, I remember it was this, you know, the, the place that I shared with a Saudi Arabian guy, an American guy, and a Chinese girl. Great. <laughs> it was like this house who was owned by this Chinese lady, and it was like decorated as a Chinese house. <laughs> like we, we were like really not allowed to touch anything. It was like way too fancy. But this, this woman had bought the house before the crisis, and then the crisis happened. So she was just still trying to, you know, pay the mortgage and get the most money out of it and for some reason you know i guess maybe it's more advantageous she thought like having students is better than maybe having a family as a renter and you know it was nice because she would have a cleaning lady coming every week and stuff but it was just a really weird scene and like the cheapest of us was the american guy so he had the smallest room that was almost like detached from our house um, but they were all great. Like, I finally felt like, you know, these are people, their English is not perfect. Yeah. They are trying to adjust. And we started doing things together. And I wasn't as lonely. And things started getting better from there. How do you, how do you deal with... Um, did it change the way you sort of work or communicate with people now who don't have a grip of... The native language like so in america there's a lot of people who english is their second language and they're not mm -hmm. so good at it and now in england there's certainly a lot as well do you think you look at it differently and do you think you look at it differently than most people look at it you i maybe have more sympathy towards those people yeah right you know and I think in the U.S. it's pretty common. Like I, I don't think Americans really questions question the English of expats. Like no one told me, oh, your English sucks. People were like, whoa, cool, you know, like you can speak our language. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Do so you think Americans are I, pretty at, good about? I think yeah. At least in California, it I, it was amazing. I really appreciated that people didn't get stuck on this one word I was not able to find. Instead, they encouraged me to yeah. speak more. Um, and probably I try to have the same attitude. Like, if I mean, obviously, I'm not going to be able to like teach anyone English. I, my English is my second language. But if someone is struggling... Oh, actually, it happened once. Like, when I was in at Stanford, there was this girl from, I want to say Korea. And they really liked her um, during the admission week. Who, they, the interview weeks for admission. Okay. Um, but they were not sure if she was going to be able to, you know, like speak the language as well as she should. So they 
paired her up with me. I became her mentor throughout her PhD. Oh, wow. So she was accepted to Stanford. Then that summer before she started school, she was at Stanford taking English classes. And we like would have these coffee dates every couple of weeks where I would like check to see how she was doing. And that I think she was really, I don't know, she probably really appreciated that. Like until she graduated, we still kind of kept in touch and she would call me whenever she was struggling in her PhD or had to make an important decision and needed some advice. But I mean, yeah, overall, like I think most people are understanding that's very nice. Yeah, that is nice. I think most people, at least I wouldn't have expected that that maybe it's because you were in California, um, but that's the view that you had of people in America because I think, you know, you can see on the news that people are maybe xenophobic sometimes in America and... Yeah, maybe in other places, right? Like not around Stanford, obviously. Yeah. That's and a, that's a great advantage for Americans because like, I'm not going to go to France if I know that French people are going to insult me not speaking their language yeah. perfectly. France definitely has that that S- reputation, right? Yeah, and then you go to US, everyone is very comfortable not speaking it perfectly. I, I think it's a huge advantage for Americans. They, they have a great culture around it. All right, well... You have any um, any other interesting points about English as a second language? When did you start reading English books? Because I can't imagine reading a book in another language. <laughs> well, you have to read those books as part of your education if you are learning the language in school. So that's probably like what? What kind of books? I start with simple ones. I can't remember probably like some children's books because I started learning in primary school and then when I was yeah like learned it started learning at a middle school some simple stories and do you like reading books in English now compared to if there's a translation in Turkish Turkish at all I haven't read and I'm not I'm not saying it as I'm not proud of it because it's because it's because I don't read enough. That's why. <laughs> but the books I prioritize to read are all in English. So I haven't read in Turkish in a very long time now. It is nice. I mean, once you are comfortable with the language, like I remember. I don't know, you know, if the thing is, it's. I wonder if you could see the or expect or let's say foresee the challenges of learning a language and practicing it in a place where only that language is spoken before you learn it right like I had no idea going to the US was I was gonna throw away like so much food because I just kept buying the stuff that I didn't really Enjoy. like or yeah was not familiar to me that would be the salad and there would be like five ingredients in it that i was not familiar i wouldn't be able to eat it and i never thought it was going to be the one of the biggest challenges of not speaking the language well but it was i just you know ended up eating chocolate most nights <laughs> <laughs> because i didn't know what to buy yeah. 
um, or That's... like similarly with reading books, you know, like when I was reading books in English, the biggest challenge at first was trying to look up, you know, the every fifth word in the dictionary. And it, I mean, you also want to educate yourself. So then you have to take a pen and then write next to it the meaning of it. And then, you know, if it comes back in like three pages ahead, you look it up again yeah. and it comes like five pages, you look up again. It takes a long time to read a book. It's very hard to finish a book without getting frustrated. And by the time you finish the book, you have no idea what happened <laughs> because you already forgot the whole storyline. Yeah. So that happens for a, a long time. And then at some point, you stop looking up words. You still don't know all the words, but you can understand what they mean from the sentence. You still understand, you know, the overall meaning. And you just let it be. It's, you know, that that to me was one of the biggest challenges of reading in English. But it's, again, you know, do you, do you like learning new stuff? Do you like, you know, these stories told in by you know people from different cultures if you enjoy it and if you don't mind the challenge a little bit i think it's it's definitely doable so maybe you have the experience that i don't i think that most of the books i read are by a white male author from america Hmm. or the uk or something do you think that uh, and my but my expectation is that most books these days that are good enough are translated. And I read this book by Murakami recently. Mm-hmm. And I believe he writes in Japanese and then translates to English. I know he does a lot of his, a lot of translations of other books. Mm-hmm. That was, that's like a job that he has. Um, do you think a lot of, do you think I'm wrong that a lot of books are translated? Like, why don't you just read these books in the translated version in Turkish? Instead of in English. Yeah. <sighs> Do they not I, exist for a lot of books? Is it hard to get? Um, it's a good question. Because I definitely think, and I don't know, maybe this is because certain languages are closer to each other in structure. You know, maybe like a Turkish translation of a Russian book is better and an English translation of a Dutch book is better because, okay. you know, the way those languages yeah. are. But I don't know. Like to me, I again, I don't read that much. But my experience is that the English translations were easier to read than Turkish translations in some books. So then I decided if I'm going to read a translation, I better do it in English rather than in Turkish. What about an English book? Like if, if you're going to read Romeo and Juliet. Then I definitely read it in English. Well, Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare's probably not the right example, but yeah. like... Um, why would you learn, why would you read a book in translation? It's like interpretation you already of know the that original li- stuff anyway. You already know the language. But you don't care about the translator. I mean, okay, if it's like, again, you know, as I told you, if it's so challenging for you to read in English, you have to look up the dictionary and you just don't enjoy it as much. Okay, like read that English book in Turkish. But 
Otherwise, you just want to be able to go to the original language and then hear from the author what he wrote or she wrote. Same with the movies, right? Like, I wish I knew all the languages so I could watch movies in their own language all the time. Yeah. Instead of subtitles. Subtitles are not fun. No. Dubbed, I think, is even worse. Interestingly, dubbed... I mean, it's it, for example, in Turkey, they do a great job. But yeah, if it's not done well, it's terrible. Especially if they leave the original voice. Like, just this low background, yeah. original language. Oh my god, so annoying. I agree. What language do you think you'd want to learn next? I tried really hard for French, but I never got to practice it enough. So it never really stayed with me. So... What about French? No, I just like the sound of it. I like, you know, like the way French is spoken. I really like the... I mean, I, I shouldn't... I don't really know the culture. I haven't lived in France, but the culture in movies and in books, it's it's really fun. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I, I think the third choice for me to, probably it would be Arabic. Arabic. Yeah. Where do you think you would use Arabic? I mean, at this point, it's not, I don't think I'm going to use anything other than English <laughs> and Turkish. Could move somewhere. Mm. You know, to France, Spain. Yeah. Spanish, I don't be that interested in. Yeah, then it depends where we want to move. Where do you want to move, Gavin? I know you want to move. Maybe Finland. To... We can learn Finnish. Oh, gosh. <laughs> After Sechel trying a decade and not being able <laughs> to speak it. Yeah. <laughs> not sure I want to do that move. All right. Well, thanks for your conversation about learning English. You're very welcome. Now back Thanks to our... Thanks for having me! Of course. Back to our puzzle. Alright, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Asahan and I. And now time for the inspiration of the week. A quote from the A Square Deal speech by Theodore Roosevelt back in 1903. And one that I holds a bit of a special place in my own heart, um, just to remind you of the really the piece that fits into my life most is where it says uh, he says far and away the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. And for a little context, I included this quote in the email I sent out to my company when I left my job in finance back uh, about eight years ago now. And, you know, in ways, I think it may have come off the wrong way to some, as if the, the work that I was leaving wasn't worth doing. But I think what I understood at that time and what I really believe, especially now reading this, is that the, uh, the reason why we do one job or another is very personal. And at that time, you know, for me, having worked in the job for a little bit, and being in a position where I, I felt I had the opportunity to 
both take a risk on on a career where I wasn't exactly experienced and and really put myself in a position to be excited about what I wanted to be working on and and what the outcome of that work would be, which is just me being a bit happier, being more satisfied. That was work worth doing. And it's not that the application of it, that creating software and, you know, I spent time cleaning up the comments section of YouTube as a job. And I can tell you that there's a lot of people who are doing a lot of things on Wall Street that is a lot more worth it in this world than cleaning up comments on videos in YouTube, you know. Um, so it's not so much the content of it, but I think it's more that I individually at the time didn't feel comfortable with where I was putting my my efforts. And for me, I think sending that quote out is it was sort of a way to say to others, you know, um, if you're unhappy with this situation, with what you're doing, with this career, then why? Why are you doing it? And for those who I know are still um, in a lot of those jobs and, and doing uh, doing things that I was doing with them at the time, I know that they understood why they had the job that they had, and they enjoyed it for a multitude of different reasons, whether it's the um, the thrill of the actual work and the, the moment-to-moment side of it, the life that they're providing for uh, themselves and their family members, or um, a number of other things. And, you know, I think each person, it's it's sort of up to you to to take that on yourself and say, why is it that I'm doing this? Is it, is it worth it for me to be taking on this career? Looking back at this quote and, and the longer version of this, I think what really hits me is the final piece of this, where he says, no one seems to arrive at any goal really worth reaching in this world who does not come to it heavy laden. And, you know, this was written 117 years ago by a man who grew up with wealth. Um, he, he famously had asthma, but he, he really had a lot going for him throughout his life. And yet he understood the idea that in order to get to something worth, worth achieving, it's going to require difficulty. And it's going to require some bit of burden that you take upon yourself. And oftentimes, I think seeing that, that difficulty ahead can be like a big you know, red flag of don't go this way, it might be difficult. But I think more often it should be more of a welcome sign that in finding something that shows that it's going to be hard and shows that it's going to have uh, difficulty in it, that oftentimes that difficulty, especially if you can see what it is and be able to calculate sort of how much trouble it's going to cause you, how much pain it's going to cause you, that that is what is going to make getting to the the mountaintop so enjoyable and so satisfying. And this is what Roosevelt's going into. You know, if you're going to get something worth reaching in this world, uh, it it's going t- to come with some burden. And for me, you know, I, I certainly agree with that. And I think the the intensity of that that peak, um, the height of that peak, is often totally correlated to to the depth of the the burden that you take on in trying to get there. Um, so yeah, I mean, for this, I, I would say anyone who hasn't had a chance to get acquainted with Roosevelt's life and the things that he worked on, please check out uh, The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund Morris and all of the works that he uh, that, that Roosevelt himself had put together. He was a, a big writer. He wrote his first 
book about the naval battles of the War of 1812 back when he was a college student um, and really had an incredible life and, and really understood, um, I think, what we all should be pushing for in life, which is having achievement that is, you know, intrinsically valuable and to each one of us feels like it's the right thing for us to be doing. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Settle the Far. All music comes from Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates. You can find Settle the Far on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and podcast.coreygarvey.com. I'd love to hear some feedback or suggestions for new guests. Until next time, stay inspired, people.